Good morning, everybody. Welcome back. Hello again. So glad that you're with us this morning. If you are joining us for the first time, you are joining us in week three of a four-week series all about blessing and the goodness of God, the kindness of God. And um, I hope you've had fun. I have had so much gladness. I feel like a chef. Each week I get an unlimited budget. I can cook you whatever I want. And I spend all week like tasting things. And oh, that's delicious. I'm going to put that in there. And so I hope you came hunger this morning. Um, I think I've, I've like prepared a meal based on what I think your appetite is. For some of us, we might need to go bags and that's okay as well. Uh, but I'm really excited to be here. We've, we've been talking about blessing the last two weeks. I've tried to show you from scripture that blessing is neither synonymous with money nor synonymous with salvation. Because there's two excesses in the kingdom. I notice some people are like, yeah, blessing's all about money, 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 money. And some people are like, no, it's not. It's all about salvation. And, and you're super secular if you think it's anything other than this. And I don't know why those people have high-pitched voices, but they tend to. And so what I've shown you from scripture is, it's just not true. It's not about, um, you know, those exclusively meaning those things. But like Brett said, that salvation is the ultimate expression of blessing. And therefore everything else is gravy. You have that expression here, right? Everything else is, yes, you do, right? Or do I just make it up? Okay. It's gravy. Last week, we looked at God's heart to bless his people, which is found all the way through scripture. The book that talks the most about blessing, because I did a Bible study on this, shocked me. It's Genesis, the foundational book of the Bible. In fact, in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, you find the first interaction between God and man. And guess what the first thing he says to them is? Well, we won't guess. We'll turn there because your enthusiasm was overwhelming, right? His first interaction with them is he blesses them. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. It continues in the next verse and it says, God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it and they will be yours for food. God, having created everything, blesses them. Hey, just multiply. May my blessing be on you. And P.S., everything I have is yours. It's all yours to manage and to rule and to reign. And so what we discovered last week is that God is a God who is intent on blessing his people. Do you remember that? Like it's biblical, it's God's heart to bless his people. What else we found is that God's idea of blessing far supersedes our idea of blessing. And so I want you to develop a hunger in your heart that God wants to bless you. And as we came to the end of last week, I realized that, hey, as I'm preparing this, probably as I'm setting up a benchmark of what the Bible would consider your life to be blessed, probably one of the questions that's coming to our hearts is, If that's what God's heart is, why does my life not look like that? Now, the very fact that we'd ask a question suggests that we'd like things to be different. But what amazes me most about the human condition, I've been a professional teacher for many, many years. Uh, What are we now? For over 20 years, I've been a teacher. And so I spent time thinking about learning, thinking about answering questions. And what amazes me most is that often as humans, we ask questions 
that we're often interested in hearing the answer to, but not interested enough to put that answer into practice. Now, I'm as guilty of that as is anybody, right? I know what I need to do to be healthier. And it's not just hold in my stomach because I'm about to pass out doing that. I know what I need to do in terms of eating and exercise. It's not for lack of knowledge. It's lack. It's for lack of willpower. Changing your life is one of the hardest things we'll ever do. That's why so many of us stay stuck. And so I bring that up because in the first week, I shared that brilliant quote from Graham Cook. Remember Graham, wonderful teacher, wonderful prophet. He said, it's not enough that we believe, but that we live fully persuaded. So to make that a little bit more personal, if we believe this morning, perhaps we're even fully persuaded that God wants to bless us, it's not enough. We have to live fully persuaded like that's true. Now, some of you are like, great, Alan, stop stalling, answer the question. (laughs) Well, my answer to this question comes in two parts. And one part without the other won't help any of us. But to ensure that I can answer both parts as fully as I can, I'm going to take this week to answer the first part, and next week I'll answer the second part. But here's the thing that I'm a little nervous about as a Bible teacher. And I'm being serious. I'm I'm not being funny here. I'm worried that you'll hear the first part today and not come back for the second part next week. And that's been my experience. And what I'd like to encourage all of us to do this morning is to take a deep breath and recognize that if we also exhale. (laughs) If we're going to be lifelong learners, we also have to be lifelong unlearners. There's some stuff that we've picked up along the way that we think is sound, but it's not biblical. And I want to unpack some of those this week. So I know that Brett already prayed, but he prayed for me. I want to pray for you this morning. Holy Spirit, as we come this morning to feast on your word, Lord, I ask that you would take what I've prepared, these little uh, loaves, these little fish, that you would multiply it. You'd feed your people this morning. That we would leave here, Lord, with clarity on how to cooperate with what you've planned for us. That we would receive all that you've paid for us. And in the process, we'd have a great time. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. Let's turn to the instructions of the wealthiest person recorded in Scripture. In fact, I think it's the wealthiest person recorded in all of history. It's King Solomon. I'm going to read you a passage from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. And it's beautiful. This is, a, this is him saying to his son, Hey, son, I've got something for you. I've got something that's just worth so much. And he starts out by saying this, My son, don't forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. I mean, right there. That's a pretty good summary of what makes up a blessed life. How many of you have got to pick? You get to live a long life that's marked by peace and prosperity. And so Solomon is saying, hey, I'm going to share some with you. I'm worried you're going to forget it. So can you please like hold on to it, write it on the tablet of your heart, and more than that, live by it. So we're on our edge of our seat. We're like King Solomon. What are your instructions that lead to a long life? Marred by peace and prosperity. He goes on, he says this. Honor the Lord with your wealth 
with the first fruits of all your crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Now, at first reading of this, a couple of things stand out to me. First of all, it's super interesting that Solomon expects us to have wealth in the first place with which to honor the Lord. So his vantage point, his starting point is that we're not poor, impoverished, unable to do anything. It's that we're starting with wealth. Do you see that? It's okay to say amen. Okay. Number two, the second thing that stands out to me, it's interesting that Solomon expected that the result of a life that honors God with that wealth would be more wealth. Look at what he says, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Third of all, the measure that Solomon expected from God was more than enough. That another word for that is abundance. Look at what it says, that we'll end up with overflowing and brimming over um, vats. That paints the picture that we will always have enough. Now back to the question that we started with. Well, why does my life not look like that? A couple of other things to consider, because I think the answer to our question this morning is found in this passage. The first thing we need to consider, and this is radical, is that not everyone wants abundance. I'm jumping ahead and I'm jumping to the New Testament. Remember Jesus is stopped by the blind beggar. Son of David, don't pass me by. And he comes back to him and he's blind. And the first question Jesus asks him is borderline offensive. Do you remember his question? What is it you want me to do for you? Can you take a guess? (laughs) But what's interesting is he says, I want to see. And he says, go um, according to your faith, be be it to you. Jesus was not one to meet an expectation the man didn't already have. And it was his faith, his capacity that met God's response. And so when it comes to blessing, I've met people who don't want abundance, either because they're scared they'll squander it, either because they don't think the Bible teaches it. In fact, people have built complex theologies against God wanting people to have abundance. And that's part of the reason I've taken the last two weeks, 50% of the time I've been devoted to has not been teaching you how, but teaching you why. Because it's so pivotal that we understand from Scripture the principle that God wants you blessed. Because he can't give what we don't value. But for those of you who do want to live with abundance, did you notice there's a prerequisite in there? Honor the Lord, then. So the blessing that we want to see, the blessing that God wants to give us, is hinging on us doing something which is honoring the Lord, which brings up a really pertinent question. How does one honor the Lord? How do we do that? And the answer you'll be glad to hear is not up for debate. We're not left to guess. We're not left to just figure out. It's right there in the passage. It says that we honor the Lord with the first fruits of all of our crops. Now, first fruits, I would wager, means precious little to us. And so it's important 
before we can understand God's word to us, we have to understand God's word to the original audience. What did they understand God meant by first fruits so that we can apply that to our life and we can figure out, okay, God, how is things important to you? How do we honor you with first fruits in our life? And I'm very glad you asked that theoretical question because it leads us to Exodus 13. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites. The first offspring to be born of both humans and animals belongs to me. That phrase, the first of everything belongs to me, is repeated 16 times in Scripture. It's really, really interesting that God declares a fact 16 times over. Hey, the first of everything is mine. And if we keep reading this chapter, we find some more instructions. So verse 12 says this, You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. So the Lord lays out two options for his people for the firstborn. Number one, if it's clean, sacrifice it. And number two, if it's unclean, like a donkey, redeem it with a lamb. Those are the only two options for the Israelites because as it says here, the first belongs to the Lord. So for the people of Israel, this was not theory. This was practical to be lived out. If you were a shepherd, if you're living with livestock, the first thing you have to do is sacrifice the first of everything that's born to you and then trust the Lord for more. So let's role play. Congratulations, you're all Israelite farmers and you're super excited because you've just purchased a cow. You're excited because that cow is the potential for great increase. And so you pray and guess what? The cow gives birth to a calf and you're super excited because provision, the plan has worked. Because this calf, you can either raise it and sell it for money or you can raise it, kill it and eat. Either way, it's provision and it's sustenance for your family. But the trouble is, according to God, that first calf belongs to him. You actually have to give it to him because it's neither yours to sell or eat. Now, what's going through your head? Well, if I give you this one, there's no guarantee you'll get another one. And don't get me wrong, Lord, I fully agree with that. But let's be practical. Let's just get a couple of more and I'll give you that one. Promise. But see, that's not faith in action. That's fear masquerading as practical wisdom. In addition to the firstborn, we also find in Scripture that the first fruits belong to God too. Look at this verse. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So again, you're a farmer, you've planted, you know, I don't know if you can grow apple trees in Israel, but let's pretend we can. Botany is not my area of expertise. All right, so you've, you've planted uh, an orchard, orchard, orchard? Spelling, apparently. It's not my, not my strong point. Neither is math and geography, for any of you who are wondering. <laughs> but you've planted some trees, and you're super excited 
But the instruction is that the first of the first fruits belong to the Lord. And so again, your heart is like, yay, we got apples. And I think they taste delicious, but I can't eat any of them because I have to give them to the Lord. But what if I don't get anything more? What if this is it? What if there's a blight that comes on the land and there's worms and they eat up everything and we're screwed? What are we going to do? And what the Lord is saying is, yeah, this principle, this eternal principle, the first belongs to me. It's designed to test your heart with blessing. Can you handle the blessing I want to pour out on your life? And the way you determine that is I give you something and I see what you do with it. And if you keep it for yourself, you can't be trusted with more. But if you willingly give it to me, oh, it's such my heart, to make sure that your vats are overflowing and your barns are stocked. Know also where it says to bring your first fruits. It says you bring it to the house of the Lord. It's important which you bring, the first, and it's also important where you bring it, to the house of the Lord. So what we've learned so far is the first portion is the redemptive portion. We give it to God first and he redeems the rest. Second, the house of the Lord is the place where you bring your first fruits. Let me lead you one more passage, then we're going to play a game together. I put up this passage. I don't think I even need to read it because I think you're also familiar with it. Sadly, this verse is often misunderstood. And when I talk about stuff we need to unlearn in order for us to learn stuff, this would be a key verse because sadly, it's been abused by people like me. And as a result, we often discard this thought, this verse without a second thought. First thing I want you to pay attention to is, do you notice the parallels between this verse and Solomon's instructions from Proverbs 3? Let me bring them up side by side so you can see. I spotted three parallels. In Proverbs 3, we're asked the question, honor the Lord with your wealth, and we're wondering, well, how do you do that? And the way you honor the Lord is with the first fruits of all your crops. In the passage in Malachi there, in the preceding passages, Malachi 3, uh, verses 8 and 9, the Lord is saying, hey, you're robbing me. And the people are like, what? And the Lord's like, stop robbing me. And they say, how do we stop robbing you? And he says, bring the whole tithe. Yeah, that parallel there. The second parallel I want you to pay attention to is the prerequisite in both of them. That if you do this, then I will do this. Or in Malachi, it says, if you do this, if you bring the whole tithe, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. And finally, did you notice the outcome of honoring God with our money is the same whether you read Proverbs or whether you read Malachi? In Proverbs 3, it's that your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. In Malachi 3, it's God's going to pour out so much blessing that there won't be room enough to store all of it. Did you notice that? That the result of doing what the Lord asks us to do ends up in the same place, that place called more than enough. However you want to put it, filled to overflowing or so much uh, blessing, there's not enough room to store it. More than enough is the minimum 
that God wants to do. That becomes difficult. Remember we were talking about our pre-understanding. When I grew up, what God was going to do for you, forget minimums, the bottom line of what God's going to do for you is he's going to give you what you need, but not what you want. And you sinners even thinking about what you want. God's not a magic eight ball, right? He's not a jukebox. He just, you know, it's like, come on, he's going to give you what you need. And P.S., sometimes what you need is less than what you think you need. And so if you get by with the skin of your teeth, you better be thankful for it. That was the tone. I'm like, now nobody taught me that, but that's what was the inference. And that's how we lived. And so you see in scripture, God has a very different heart. And this is where it gets difficult to think and to live fully persuaded. See, God is saying, give me what's mine and I'll make sure that you have more than you did before you gave it to me. And to the rational mind, that makes no sense. But let me ask you, which part of the kingdom does make sense? Is it the bit where we die in order to live? Is it the bit where like the last shall become first? Or is it the bit where you lose your life to gain it? Tithing is just as supernatural as any other part of life in the spirit. And my encouragement to you today is don't let your rational mind talk you out of a heavenly truth the Holy Spirit is trying to reveal to you. Let me bring you up, uh, let me bring up a different verse, one that we've already looked at. This is from Exodus 23. And again, look at the parallels here. The Lord says that we are to bring the whole tithe. And the tithe is, in essence, the first of our first fruits. It's the first 10% of our increase. And the instruction there is what we're to bring is the whole tithe, not part of it. And also notice where do we bring it? Tithes, just like first fruits, are brought so that there are resources in God's house. My encouragement is bring your tithe where you're fed because that's what a storehouse is. All right, now let's play a game. I went to the bank this morning. Thought I'd make it rain. <laughs> I went to the bank this morning and I got a stack of 20s, which is for my second game. But what I forgot to get was a crisp $100 bill. Does anyone have a crisp $100 bill they can give me for a sermon illustration? You, sir, thank you so much. Just know where you're from. Yeah, that's a crisp $100 bill. A couple of questions. First question, can I keep it? I love this game. Okay, next game. Second question. Was that easy to give me that $100? Yeah, it was. Why was it easy to give me that $100? Because I gave it to you. Before the service started, I said, hey, Matt, can you hold on to this? Because at some point I'm going to need a sermon illustration. All you have to do is give it back to me when I ask for it. Right? Now, the point in doing that is to illustrate that tithing doesn't cost you anything because it's already his. You were just stewarding it. When I gave it to him about an hour ago, he was stewarding it for me until it was time to give it back to me. Now, what if Matt sat silent when I asked for it? 
And what if some of the other kind people were like, oh yeah, I've got $100. And Matt's like, ah, oh, see, the Lord met Alan's prayer. <laughs> and what if Matt went home with it? What do we call that? Stealing, right. It's not forgetfulness. It's not absent-minded. It's not grace. It's theft. Very good. Next game. Let's say my paycheck is $200. And it's almost like my boss knew I was going to use this as a sermon illustration. And he's given me 10 $20 bills. So we got a couple of questions. Is the first question is, how much is my tithe on $200? $20. My second question is, which $20? The first. What I mean by that is, before I spend any of that money, I want to make sure that I return my tithe. Third question, where does my tithe go? To the house of the Lord. See, according to the principles that we discovered are first fruits, it's not my $20. See, the danger is that often what we do is we agree in principle. Yeah, I totally love tithing. Oh my gosh, yeah, totally. But what we do is we get the money and we think, okay, well, I need to pay rent and I need to pay food and I need to pay for electricity and my friends are going out and so I'm going to go for that and I need to do this and I need to do that and, you're, and we get to the end and we're like, oh, I totally meant to, but I don't have enough. I don't have any in. Praise God that he's full of grace, amen. <laughs> amen. Now, the most common reaction I get when I teach on tithing is people are like, the tithe is Old Testament. We're not under the law anymore. And I would say, yeah, I fully agree. But there's lots of stuff that's, under, that's Old Testament that we still honor. For example, I don't commit adultery. That's under the law. I also don't steal and I don't worship false idols and those too are under the law. You know what? I go one step further. I still make the Lord the number one of my life and I honor my mother and my father. And guess what? Those two are under the law and are Old Testament truth. So it's fascinating to me that when it comes to the tithe, everyone becomes an expert in the law. The notion that as New Testament believers that we don't honor the Old Testament is crazy. We still believe the Old Testament even though we're under a new covenant. But what we don't try and do is keep a new covenant through old covenant means. With me? So what I mean by that is when I refuse to commit adultery when I refuse to steal, when I refuse to worship false idols, I don't not do those things because I'm bound by the law. I don't do, not do those things to try and earn God's favor. I refuse to do those things because I have God's favor. It's my worship via my lifestyle to say, because I love you, I want to honor you. It's also not that altruistic because God's taking great pains to point out that committing adultery and stealing and worshiping false idols will bring calamity upon my life. Hey, Alan, those things will lead to death. Similarly, when I prioritize the Lord, when I honor my mother and father, yes, when I tithe, I'm not doing those things because I'm bound by the law. I'm not doing those things to try and earn good standing with God. I do those things because I have good standing with the Lord. 
And he's gone to great lengths to show me that when I do those things, it adds blessing to my life. See, what I'm teaching you today, although it's found in the law, is not the law. It's eternal principles. The principle of the tithe predates the law by 400 years. The principles of first fruits goes back even further than that, as I'll show you momentarily. Now, some of you, you're listening carefully to what I'm saying. And you're also saying, Alan, I do tithe. And my life still does not look like the flourishing description you gave last week. And I understand that question. And I understand your distress because for most of my adult life, I lived with that same reality. But I have a question for you that might shed some light on why that could be the case. And the question is this. Are you tithing or are you just giving 10%? To which you might say, well, what's the difference? There is a huge difference and it has nothing to do with math. Let me show you why. I'm going to show you first in scripture and then I'm going to give you a practical testimony from AJ and I's life. Let's look at Genesis 4. Remember, we started Genesis 1, we're now in Genesis 4. Right back. Remember I said that first fruits predates even further. This is right back in, you know, near creation. And it says this, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. P.S. No law has been given, by the way. Right? And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And it goes on in verse five, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now, how many of you have ever been confused by this verse? Remember as a boy being super confused, like, I don't, I just don't get it. And then I grew up and I started eating places. And so if I came to your house and you fed me a ribeye with all that choice marbling, mm, I would have way more favor on you than if you served me salad. <laughs> just being honest and you can't judge me because it's a biblical principle. Sadly, that's not the lesson in this, in this verse here. But let's reread this verse with the revelation that we have from the subsequent events in Scripture. There's this curious phrase that says, in the course of time. Kind of like, as time passed on, Cain brought an offering to the Lord. Contrast that with what Abel brought, which was the firstborn of his flock. I think what this passage is telling us is it has more to do with when than it does to do with what. Right? So it's not about plants versus livestock. It's about like when you get round to it and immediately. Tithing has a when component in addition to a what component. Let me tell you a story about when I learned this practically. A number of years ago, AJ and I, well, it wasn't AJ, it was just me, me and um, Pastor Lyle Phillips from Legacy Church up in Nashville. Le- um, Lyle and I were having lunch. Lyle had just finished reading a book, which I'm going to recommend to you next week. Lyle's got full of energy anyway. He's like the Duracell pastor, right? He outlasted the rest of it. He's like, oh my God, you know, God's amazing. And bro, have you seen this? And look at my beard, it's immaculate. And oh, all this revelation, right? 
So he's sitting there, and it's like being handcuffed to a you know tornado, and it's amazing. Like you just strap yourself in, you just go for this amazing whirlwind of revelation. And he's been reading this book, and he is high on tithing and first fruits and financial blessings. He's just got so many testimonies, and he's talking to me about the first fruits. He's putting all this emphasis on the first fruits. And as I'm listening to him, I'm trying to make sense of what he's saying. And so I said, Lyle, let me ask you a question. AJ and I have been faithful tithers our whole life, whole married life. But I get paid on the first and on the 15th. And practically speaking, on the first, all of my big monthly expenses come out on, my, on the first. So I've got my mortgage, I've got my car payment, I've got insurance. I, I don't have, there's not enough money to pay my tithe on the first. So AJ and I pay our tithe for the whole month on the 15th. And to, you know, to make it clear, I said, the tithe that we would be owe on the first and the tithe that we would be owe on the 15th, in January we pay on the 15th the whole thing. And he's like, uh-huh. And I was like, well, we're not doing what you're saying, but we're still tithing. And so Lyle looks at him and he says, Alan, how much faith does it take to pay God last? So I reached over and choked him out. <laughs> Figured I could raise him from the dead. It's fine. So as he's gasping for air and tapping out, right? I was like, no, Lyle, like, I don't think you understand. I'm tithing. Like at the end of the month, me and God were square. And just like that, I said, yeah, but for the first 14 days, you're holding on to what is his, not yours. At first, I just thought he was so religious. <laughs> but then I was convicted because at the root of my argument, basically I'm saying I can't afford to tithe on the first portion of the month. And I had this little thought, what if the reason I couldn't afford to tithe was because I wasn't honoring God in the first place. So I came home and I told AJ, I said, babe, listen to what Lyle said. And I tell her. And she's like, huh. So you know what we did? We made some changes. The first of those changes that we made a decision that the first of every paycheck would go straight to God. Before we paid anything else, the first payment of every increase we have ever received. I don't just talk about... Um, our salaries, but if we get a gift, if we get a financial gift, if it's our birthday and somebody gives us birthday money, the first thing we do before we even spend any of it is we tithe. And when I say we tithe, I say we give it to Grace Center. Why? Because God wants food in his house and we want to obey his word. Now, as you can imagine, that was scary for very big reasons. The biggest expense that we have is our mortgage. And it too comes out on the first of each month. So we kind of made this commitment, but then we're kind of left with the math. And if I pay God the tithe, we're not going to have the money to pay our mortgage. How does that make sense? Well, it depends which part of the question you're asking. If you're asking, does it make sense to default on your mortgage? The answer is no. But if you're asking, does it make sense to honor the Lord and to put into practice what his word says, then the answer is yes. So what do you do with those two opposite things? You put the word of God to its test. Now, I'm sure what you're wondering is what happened. Did you default on your mortgage? 
I don't remember the exact date, but I know that we just got paid. So we'd been paid our 15th and we're looking to the first of the next month coming up. It's sometime in that window that AJ and I make this decision. The day after we make this decision, we haven't even put that decision into practice. We've just made that decision together. This is what we will do. Agreed? Agreed. Huh? The day after we get a check out of the blue for $20,000. Please be careful. I'm not saying that's what will happen to you. I'm telling you that's what happened to me. So I call Lyle. I'm like, bro, bro, sit down if I got a testimony for you. And then it's my turn to speed talk. Like, so we decided this. We haven't even done it yet. The Lord gets 20 grand. He's like, bro, it's amazing. I'm telling you. There's something on this. I'm like, yeah, there's something on this. See, the error that most Christians make is that they think the tithe is about the what. And it is. It's about the 10%. But it's also about the where, which is the house of the Lord. And it's also about the when, which is he needs it first. Now, a couple of common questions that I get asked a lot is like, Alan, I heard what you said, and I give 10% for sure. But 5% of it is like to different Christian missionaries. About 3% of it is to my church, and then 2% is to some charities. Does that count as tithing? Not according to the scriptures we've read this morning. Another common question I get. It sounds like, well, you know, I don't know if it's exactly 10% because I'm not religious. And I don't like to keep track of that stuff. Instead, I just give as the Holy Spirit leads me. My first response would be, why do you have so much confidence it's the Holy Spirit leading you when you're ignoring what the Holy Spirit already told you through the written word of God? Always be deeply suspicious it's the Holy Spirit leading you into something that contradicts what he already wrote down. The second thing I'd, pay, I'd point out is it's really not religious to keep track of what you're giving. It's actually prudence at work to ensure that you're doing what he's asked. You might not be keeping a record, but the New Testament tells us that Jesus is. Remember that story? One day Jesus sent us at the temple and he's watching the offering box and he's watching people give in large amounts of money. And then a woman comes in with just like, you know, two small coins. And he, Jesus nudges his disciples. I tell you the truth, that woman gave more than all of these people. These people gave out their access. She gave all that they had. And so you might be thinking, but that answer sounds good. You know, I'm just led by the Spirit and I just give. I'm like, what other area of our finances is that a responsible attitude to take? I mean, I don't know if I paid my mortgage per se. You know, I just kind of like go with the Holy Spirit. Maybe I am, maybe I am. I'm not religious. I don't keep track of it. Guess who does? Your mortgage company. Who are not going to take too kind to be like, no, I'm just Spirit-led. Oh my gosh, you guys are so Old Testament. Huh? A serious question. Alan, if we don't give to missionaries because we're giving our money to the local church, how will they be supported? That's a good question. It's one I'm going to address next week. But a more important question is, what are you doing giving money that's not yours to give away in the first place? If Matt held that $100 and he gave it to somebody else, that other person might think he's being generous. But you can't be generous if it didn't cost you anything. It was his money that he was stewarding on my behalf that I didn't want him to be generous with. With me? If you're not tithing first, you're not tithing. 
You are giving 10%, but as every server in this room will tell you, that's a pretty poor tip. Now, when we started this question, I told you there would be two parts to my answer to this question. So if you're sitting there going, Alan, like I, I am tithing and I'm actually tithing the way you showed us from Scripture and I'm still not seeing the blessing the Scripture describes, that's okay. We still have a second part to go. And next week, in our final week, I'm going to be talking about the second part to this answer. But remember my fear. The second part without this first part in place will do nothing for you. So my encouragement today is if you're not tithing, start. And if you realize today that you thought you were tithing, but you've actually just been giving 10%, make an adjustment because you can never go wrong honoring the Lord. One of the easiest ways and the most practical ways that AJ and I have decided to ensure that God always gets our first as we've set up automatic giving. Do you know why that's convenient? Because you only have to make the decision about whether you're going to tithe once, and then it's settled. If we didn't, you better believe 24 times a year, we'd be like, do we, I don't know, because, you know, this is a big month for family birthdays, you know, I don't want to be excited. We just made the decision once, we set it and forget it. If you go to gracecenter.us slash give, or just the Grace Center website and click the give button in the top right-hand corner, that little button right down there allows you to set up recurring giving. And I want to encourage you, part one of ensuring that you're walking in receiving the gifts that God has already paid for is that you demonstrate to him that you can be trusted with little so you can be trusted with much.